I literally just read a part in the third book where something horrific is happening and somebody mentions like silk ties and a whip and Fedra gets turned on and the character's like, even now, Fedra? And she's like, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, it, it was, is really funny. It is so funny. And relatable. And <laughs> Oh, no, I mean, no, I don't know. I don't get it. That never, that never happens. Yeah. I've never been turned on in inappropriate moments. What are you talking about? Hello and welcome, guys, to another episode of your favorite podcast, Unresolved Textual Tension. Today, I am once again joined by one of my handsome bitches, William, and our fantastic guest co-host, Mr. Sapphire, Gina. And today we are reading, and I don't have any of my props with me now, but at, at, in a minute, ah, today we are reading... Kushiel's Chosen, which is the second book in uh, the first of the Kushiel It's, it's the second book of the main trilogy. Trilogy. Yeah, there's Phaedra's trilogy, and then there's Imriel's trilogy, and then there's some Nama trilogy. But anyway, this is the second book in Phaedra's trilogy. We're going to be talking about it today. So to start off with, guys... How do we feel about this book? I really liked it. I was really compelled while I was reading it. It's weird because I'm probably going to talk about the bits that didn't work for me more than the things that did because those are mostly followed on from the first book. But don't get me wrong. I would just want to foreground that, yeah, I really liked this book. I still think Jacqueline Carey writes really amazingly. Um, there's some really fun and interesting and intense uh, sequences in the book. And I still just adore it. And Gina, this is your second read? Of this book? Yeah, it's the second. So and how how did this strike you? The Was there any difference between the first and second read for you? Basically the same? Yeah, I actually could understand and remember all the political plot things this time. Because the first time it's like, names, names, names. I don't know who any of these people are. Like, oh, it's resolved. Okay, good. <laughs> but uh, this time I actually remember who was doing what. And how do you feel about this book compared to the first book? I think that this book was actually a bit better written, but I liked it less. I agree that I think there are things that work better in the first book. Um, and for me, nothing really tops that middle third that you don't like in the first book in this book uh, except for the last third I really like the last chunk of this book because I think the entire breaking into uh the, that temple and a Shirat's temple and like taking her I love that entire sequence the second third of this book is actually the best part which is Pirate Kazan I I love Pirate Kazan I wouldn't argue it's my favorite I like the last third for me yeah but you're more political and everything but I also like you got the the like reunion with Jocelyn in the last third the hatching the plan uh that awesome like duel with the the two castle like there's so many in but the second third you get all of the Phaedra's a badass on her own because she's a badass because she's Phaedra. Oh, no, I love the second third. Like, it, the difference in my love for I those two didn't thirds. I love the second third too much, guys. It's fine. We'll talk about why we like it, and you can talk about why we don't. I think sometimes um, the way I think about it is that each of the books is... We, we've talked right about how they're broken into thirds, and so sometimes I rate them almost like the thirds are independent. So at the top is like... It's not called Scadia. What's it called? Scaldia. Scaldia. That's never... That's not going to be topped. And then the last third here, I think, and then the first third, and then the... You know, and then down from that. I actually really enjoyed the first third of it of this book, and I feel like it's much cleaner written mm -hmm. than the first third it's of... It's yeah. so much cleaner. And, and for me, so much more enjoyable. And there was... 
Uh, and we'll talk about this. When I, I was getting ready to film the first video with Gina, where like neither of us were rereading the books, we were just going to do all three at once from pure memory. I read uh, some, two of the writers on tour did a reread of this, and they did a really nice comprehensive like plot breakdown. And they broke the book, books up into thirds uh, as well. And they really didn't love the first third of this. And I'm like, nah, it was pretty good. And I enjoyed it even more the second time around. I do think I like this book overall a bit more than the first book, but there are ways in which I think the first one does things better. And we'll talk about that. I think it's an interesting thing sometimes with series where once you become a fan, you start thinking of the books more as independent elements than one book as a whole. And I found myself doing that with this, even though this is my first time reading it. So like the parts with the dressmaker, I really loved her as a character. So like that is valuable to me in its own right. It's been the first time in a while, guys, but take a drink because I'm talking about A Song of Ice and Fire. <sighs> you know, you stop seeing those Where's books- Where's my like tea? You stop seeing those books as like, independent story arcs and you start just looking at the specific story arcs within them and even just following certain viewpoints in them and so it's one of these things that like your experience rereading a book and you guys can speak to this more but your experience reading a book the first time and your experience rereading it are different and the things that bother you less i'm always reminded of spinning silver which like i talked with maria at the time i said like a lot of the pacing issues are bothering me but when i think back to this book i'm gonna just think about the things that i enjoyed and not my experiences in the moment. And that actually has happened. I do remember that book really fondly and I really like it, but I'm mm -hmm. like, I don't know if I want to reread it except for Stepan. Poor Stepan, it gets such a bad rap. I um, hate him so much. I know. So yeah, there's, I think a lot of good things in this book. There's things to talk about like that could have been, like I'm going to make an argument for how Jacqueline Carey writes a good romance. And then I'm also going to make a, argument that it actually will is going to make it and i'm going to agree with him about how the resolution to the that's really her job here at the podcast she sometimes goes off script by having her own opinions but really she's here to reinforce mine <laughs> or you know when he steals mine and passes them <laughs> off as his own his which own is, opinions which is something in real time one thing i will say too that's interesting is that you start to notice in this one repeating elements of jacqueline carey as a writer because that just mm -hmm. happens because in the first book you don't know notice them as specific stylistic things with her because you just think they're things with that book and then you start to like notice them a little bit more as it's now a series and you can see and i'm sure if i read another book of hers in a different world i would notice even more of them because um, that's happened with writers that i like but let's go ahead and jump into the plot so what's the first third of this book called maria first third of this book was not very creatively uh titled and it i'm, I'm pretty good because i do put it as mainly the first half uh we're going to talk about this book in thirds this particular book has three distinct sections but they're not perfect thirds like this first third is about half of the book and it literally just says in tear donge and then in La Serenissima, because apparently on this one, I was l a little less <laughs> creative. The beginning is like, it, and it picks up. And this is my first thing that I'm going to say Jacqueline Carey missed an opportunity with. She put the beginning of this book in the end of the last book. Because we're starting with, like, what would have worked way better, I think, for the, the romantic themes we're going to be exploring. Because uh, like a huge core, and we mentioned this at the end of the last book, is... She gets a delivery and it's her Sangwa Angiset cloak. Uh, and it's basically Melisande being like, I'm back, bitches. 
come find me. Um, and she has, she's like, God damn it, I gotta get it back in the game, which is literally like, she's gotta get back to Nama's service and go back to the city of Eloa and start doing some sexy investigating. And Jocelyn's like, God damn it, we were together. I loved you, why are you breaking my heart? Um, and that happens at the end of the last book but it is the beginning of this book it is the thing that literally sets the plot off in this book so it's really weird when you start this book that like it's literally the two of them traveling to the city of Eloa being like angry with each other like like well not angry but like Jocelyn's upset he's done uh, he's done a vigil in front of like Eloa's yeah I was wondering how that would read if um you hadn't read the first book directly beforehand which I had so like I it was only like a week or two later so I was like okay, this works for me, but I'm not sure how much it would work for others. It's sort of the reverse problem of what they have in the Lord of the Rings in the movies where like Boromir dies at the beginning of the two towers, whereas that emotional resolution really should happen at the end of Fellowship. And in the movies, they switch it over to be um, to work a little bit better. That is inherently the issue where like this event was just misplaced and you feel it. And I felt it way more because I didn't immediately jump into this book from... <laughs> every time One moment guys when i read it the first time i back to back these like i literally finished the first one and immediately started the second one like within like I, in the same car ride so i didn't notice it but on this time i had about like two weeks between them because i had to read whatever the thing was we were recording after this i don't remember cyborg tinkerer ah oh, yes that literary masterpiece mm. guys check out the link up here in the upper right if or over there where there's going to be a card check if it you, out maria really loved that book if you want to watch me suffer but anyway and so i noticed so much more that like the tone just doesn't work at the start of this book because we're missing the inciting incident and it's not like it's because you're right at the like, what's his face's death should have come at the end of the one book because it's a dramatic event that like has emotional. Well, and it resolves like, the arc, the plot. Exactly. Arc. So the arc here is starting halfway through. And it's just, it's a dumb, it's, it's, it was the one of the decisions that I was like, nah, this, this wasn't it. And like, I think that's where you can tell that Carrie maybe was like in the early writing of her because like nothing like that happens in the second series, like the second trilogy. All of the books are self-contained. They begin and end within their own stories. And um, so I think this was just like a learning. In general, I feel like this one too, I mean, outside of that issue was much more polished than the first one. I always felt like the first third and the first one is very disorganized. And Mm -hmm. again, I enjoyed it more than Maria. And there's kind of an energy to when a writer is just writing whatever they want, but it was disorganized. And this one is much more organized except for this element. And so uh, basically they go back to Ter- They go back to the city of Eloa and she's like, wait, wait, wait. First though, uh, Jocelyn is like so extra. It's kind of adorable. <laughs> he's like, all right, I got to pr- I got to think on this for a day. And he's just sitting and looking at the statue and everybody else in her household is like, what's he doing? Like, does and, like, he need- he's literally outside all day, just like staring. And isn't it raining? Like it's yes. real dramatic. Like yeah. Jocelyn's like, I must go uh, and do Cassiel's uh, <laughs> so vigil funny. before the statue of Elwa to to like come to terms with what I must do. I am Cassiel's servant. I protect and serve. And like the house staff is just like looking out the window and like looking at Phaedra, like should we like do something here? She's like, nah. And it's funny because Phaedra, like, she feels bad, but she's like, I gotta bitch, gotta do what bitch gotta do. And she's like, it's wild 
he's coming to terms with it. <laughs> He'll fine. handle it. We should say her household has three chevaliers with them that were <laughs> sailors from the previous book that are now serve her. And they're like, they're really fun. There's, uh, I forget their names. Philippe, Fortune, and Remy. Uh, Remy. <gasps> they're really fun characters. So and like, fun. they really love Fedra, which is like a nice thing. And they're going to help her with her sleuthing through getting drunk with other guards. It's so and, uh, great. Nothing tragic will happen. This is still in the first third, so it's like relevant here. But they just get so mad on Fedra's behalf at everything Jocelyn does. They're just like, Jocelyn, what the fuck? Like, I'll date her if you don't want her. Like, come on, what are you doing? It's so great. Uh, <laughs> And they're fantastic. And they're really, because they were interested, they were characters that had like a, a spark of personality at the end of the first book. Um, and like, they literally created, like they're like, they were called Fedra's boys in, in their own little like branch of the military. And they sang body songs about like, whip us, hit us, we don't care. Like, and, and Fedra was like, this is so embarrassing, but I love it. <laughs> um, and so these three asked her to be part of, like, they wanted to continue on, like, with her. They were really inspired, and uh, they're fantastic. Um, but anyway, they have to pack up. They, they leave Montrev. They head to the city of Eloa. Uh, she's immediately, like, sexy spyings. She, she reded, like, she comes back, and she's like, I'm rededicating myself to Nama and taking uh, offers. And while she's there, I don't want to spend too much time. This, I find, like Will said, this is a way better first third, despite doing very similar things to the first third in the first book. It just works. Number one, we don't have the like time jumpy skippy days. We know all the names now. So we get like ideas of the factions. And if you get a new name, it's like one or two new names and not like a bajillion. One of the things that's happening when she comes to court is there's this Serenissimen guy, Severio Stregazza. And uh, he's a quarter Don Jolene, and he's real fucking mad about it. Like, he's just a grumpy boy. They meet at a, a party. They do a- We should say that La Serenissima is the Italy analog. Specifically, because Terike Unitas is Italy, and Ser La Serenissima is- Venice. And then Tiberium, which isn't in this book, is like Rome, specifically. When she first comes back, she has to get a house. They get a house. And then she's like, it's going to be like the the winter, not the winter, the um the big fate where like the, there's the winter king and then the, the sun princess or prince. And then like she turns into I think into they just spring. call it the longest night. Yes, the longest night. Thank you. Do you know that was exactly what I was looking for? But they have, there's always like a big party for the longest night. Uh, and she got invited to the Queens. And the only other time uh, she's been has been when she was young. And then that time where she went with Melisande in the see-through diamond dress. Good time. And she's like, this is going to be my deb debut to society. This is, I'm going to whet people's appetites for my presence. The reason I mention this is because she, when she goes back to the city, she's recommended a, uh, a dressmaker. And we have to talk, this, this dressmaker isn't like important to the plot, but she's a great character. And I think this is some of the, like, this is one of the moments where, you know, Jacqueline Carey is a good writer because she bought, she imbues this character with so much like life and like a tale with a scene. And it just continues every time this character. And also the character doesn't really like Fedra that much, which makes everything feel like a little bit more real and like yes. an independent person. Well, and the character does like show like Fedra is like, character herself because of what she does like once she gets some of the money back this character is named favriel no eglantine she is an adept of eglantine house but she uh is flawed she she split her lip when she was young so she couldn't ever become like a not a 
servant of Nama in that sense. So she just makes dresses and it's going to take forever. The idea is because she has to make all the costumes and stuff for Eglantine house, which she doesn't make money on. And then any commissions she makes, she, the Eglantine house gets the money and that's how she pays back her mark and her mark is pretty big. And uh, Fedra goes and she's like, I'd like some outfits for the longest night. And she's like, bitch, you come in here. It's like in a week, I've got like four different people wanting costumes. And you think you can just ask me for something for the like, like, fuck you. And Fedra's like, it's the first person who just genuinely dislikes Fedra and never likes Fedra. Like, eventually <laughs> they reach like a tacit sort of peace, but it's not friendly. business agreement essentially and, like and, mutual aid and fedra sees in her like because uh, a huge thing for fedra was when she first was part of the night court they called her imperfect because of the moat in her eye because Sirius house apparently didn't know what the fuck kushiel's dart was you know with their quest for perfection um and so she sees a part of like what her life could have been had it not been for delani noted noting that that was actually an important thing um and in Favriel, despite her being a rude ass bitch. And I liked it because I, I like people being a rude ass bitch to Fedra. It's fun. She's and she's great. She was like one of my favorite characters. Again, she's not super relevant to the plot, but she was a lot of fun. But she makes Fedra a really cool dress based on this woman who is Nama's child from when she slept with a murderer and, and thought to be Kushiel's first chosen. And so she goes in like a really simple black outfit. He asked Austin to go and he's like, no, you're literally doing this to debut yourself so people want to fuck you. I'll pass. <laughs> Amadou Elo is vigil. K thanks. <laughs> What's really happening with Jocelyn mostly throughout this part is that he and Fedra are just drifting apart because he just does not like her being into this stuff and having sex with other people. And, you know, he's still kind of dealing with, though I would have liked it if they'd gone into it a little bit more, having broken a lot of Cassiel's vows uh, as a Castelline. And so he is hanging out a lot in the Hiberu quarter. The Hiberus are actually really fascinating because the best way to explain them is as Christian Jews. The Yeshuites. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Hebrew they speak, they they speak. speak Hebrew. Right. Yeshuites. This is, if I can go on a tangent for a minute. I once watched a video series by a guy who wrote a book or whatever, but it's about early Christianities and the ones that died out and didn't become dominant. And one of the things that really he talks about is how Jesus was not trying to found a new religion. He was trying to reform an old one. And so I feel like the Yeshuaites are almost the um, application of that or what that would look like in that they're treated exactly like Jews were treated in the Middle Ages. They're their own little... A separate community, no homeland. The uh, narrator does a great voice for them, which is really funny. And just like, it's just so good with accents throughout this entire book. It's just really impressive. And Flossnick is excellent. Excellent narrator. Yeah, no, incredible. Um, But so there's all of that, but they believe in the, uh, I forget what it's called, the prophet. Yeshua ben Yosef. Yosef. Yeshua Yosef. ben Yosef. Yeah. And that's how you know he's literally the Jesus analog because he's... Yeshua, son of Joseph. <laughs> the Castellines and the Yeshuaites have always had like a little bit close of a relationship because they call him the apostate because they still kind of believe in the same stuff. And the Castellines aren't into all the like sexy times stuff. And so he's been hanging out in the Yeshuaite quarter and kind of getting a little bit closer to them. And they have a prophecy of a land that they're going to be given. And they're going to be given it um, by a man who like 
has stars in his hands, I think who, is what it's who, called. Who, like, hands flash like stars. And they're all thinking that it's Jocelyn. And so he's being kind of courted into, like, this is the path my life should take. One of the things that they do this with, and, and how he gets involved with the Yeshuai quarter is uh, Fedra's still trying to solve the great mystery of how to get uh, her good friend Hyacinth out of being master of the straits and stuck on an island forever and ever and ever. She thinks the key to that because the the god who like cursed the master, the original master of the straits and his son was the god of the Yeshuaites and his uh, angel Rahab, uh, that whole thing. So she thinks the answer is to look into that. So she starts on her own. Like there's a little in Montrava scholar that she starts talking to. But anyway, when they get to the city, she's like, yo, Jocelyn, go, go see if you can find someone to help me learn more. And he ends up the, the Reba in the city of Eloa is fantastic. I love him as a character. He fucks with her a little bit and it's great. Again, it's one of the ways that the world feels very real and not everything revolving around Fedra. She does great with cultures. Like really, like they don't feel like a caricature. There is a, a feel to them. She she writes a schism into like the religion and what's happening with it and it's all done very well. I noticed this especially later too. The way she writes cultures is just fascinating because it feels like such a glacier that you're only getting a glimpse of such a culturally rich deep real place and i think she's able to because i've been thinking like in terms of how do i apply that to my own writing and i think part of the trick is that it's an alternate history so your brain automatically thinks like oh there's all this normal real cultural stuff going on instead of this just being like a middle east analog or a balkan analog as she starts studying with the rebbe jocelyn starts hanging out with people and they start trying to woo him with the well you know it, any sins you feel you may have committed, our God will absolve you of all. We can, we can, and and he's he's feeling now that Fedra has returned back to the service of Nama. He's really feeling his feels, like Will said about the vows. Uh, he broke the ways in which he like disregarded the Castling teachings, um, and so he's he's vulnerable, and he's in a position where the comfort of a nice cozy forgiving religion sounds real good with a pretty jewish girl making eyes at him though hilariously he doesn't really realize it too much because jocelyn is best boy but jocelyn is dumb boy (laughs) it's also hilarious throughout the book how much fedra talks about how pretty he is he'll just be doing something unrelated and she'd be like and he was so beautiful his his, uh what how does she describe his his corn wheat hair so she goes to the fate and at that uh like Again, Jocelyn decides he's going to go do Eloa's vigil by himself. So she takes Fortune with her, um, who is one of her chevaliers. He's great. I love him. He goes with her. He gets all like nice, like uh, Fabriel makes him a nice outfit. At the fate, that's where she meets Severio Stregazza. And he is angry and rude. And Phaedra's like, fuck you. I don't like you. But then there's this moment where he like kind of grabs her. And there's that moment where she's like, oh, fuck, this is a patron. Like (laughs) he grabs her. She got turned on. They saw it in each other's eyes. And she was like, yeah, I'm probably going to be hearing about this later. Um, And she does. Uh, The other character we're introduced to at this fate who has like to the overall story, no major plot, uh, but is eventually comes back sort of in the the second trilogy is this guy named Marmion Sharazai. He is one of Melisande's cousins and he is one of the people who betrayed her into uh, the justice system. Like when, She'd done all the bad. And if you remember, Sharazai is the house of Melisande. So there's a certain amount of like, oh, is he in on it? It should be stated that throughout this whole thing, 
basically and the the chevaliers are helping um are helping fedra figure out they're trying to figure out which of the guards let melisande out of the prison and helped her escape back at the end of the first book and so that's what they're trying to kind of how figure out. did she escape and and fedra immediately sees marman and was like maybe that guy helped her but she's also uh Suspicious of the Duke Longvere, despite saving her life at the end of the last book and being incredibly loyal to his sister or his niece. Um, but he's been shifting the past. So she she questions him as well. He would have had the opportunity to do it. So at this party, she's also like listening, talking to people, being like super spy. Sexy spying. Sexy spying. But then after this, literally all the offers come pouring in, just like offer, offer, offer. And then the one that knocks them all out, 50,000 gold. <laughs> is Severio Stregazza. And it is literally, you find out later, the money his dad sent him <laughs> with, with which to bribe and ingratiate himself into Donjolene society. And he was like, no, fuck it, I'm, I'm spending it all on a night with Pendra. <laughs> My penis is lonely. <laughs> and I want to hit someone that looks pretty. His grandfather, uh, who is Benedict La, de la Cosselle, married his mom, his grandmother, but he got like Benedict got sold off to La Serenissima in a political marriage. Um, and he's not really fall, fond of his Serenissima family. And so Severio's always felt belittled by his grandfather. And now he came to the land of his grandfather and everyone's so fucking gorgeous. And in comparison, he looks a little like rough and he's just mad at everyone. And so then he like, of course, Phaedra takes the, of course she takes the, the, um, the assignation. Number one, she owes her benefactor money that she needed to pay Favriel a dress with. So, so she does it. And they're like, what are you going to do with... Because he sends like half of it initially. And she's like, I know what I'm doing with this money. And she basically goes and she pays Favriel Noeglantine's mark off. And Favriel is super pissed. Like, I didn't ask you to do this. I don't fucking want to owe you everything. And she's like, fine, bitch. Make your life. Get your <laughs> life together. You can't say... Because Favriel made a point about uh, Phaedra having opportunity and she's like this is your opportunity bitch now you can't talk shit about me um but anyway she has a uh thing with severio realizes severio has really no basic like nothing really interesting to add to her spying they have a good time he takes out his whippy whippy frustrations on her i thought that scene was hilarious where he's like the tiberian monarch and she's yeah. the donjeline <laughs> and he's like and like they do this whole little role play thing he is an interesting character because it goes to somewhat of the sex positiveness of the books and that he's never quite understood or been comfortable with his interest in kink and bdsm and he's and that's i think a feeling a lot of people who are into that have had it some point or all of their lives or have struggled with especially when you don't know anyone else who also likes those things exactly and so for him having this moment with fedra this interaction made him be a lot more at peace with it and especially the way that fedra is accepting of it so he feels like okay this is a normalized thing this is okay and he's like yeah i spent all my dad's money and she's like actually that is the best thing you could have done because in dendulin society that makes you like a big head that or you're a badass you're badass because you got the you got the really pretty courtesan with high status. You got her first assignation when she came back. Like you threw your dick on the table, buddy, and it was big. <laughs> she ends up getting an assignation with this lady named Nicola Longvere e Aragon. Uh, she's been married into the one of the Aragonian houses. She's and she, one of my other favorite characters. She's great. He's just like every woman who's not Fedra. I like Fedra. No, I know, but like you also like every other woman in this series. That's not true. Um, there's a ugly one at some point. I'm sure I don't like. <laughs> he like 
likes uh I like bitchy sassy. He likes women. bitchy and women. Then also and all of, of these that. women. Melisande, bitchy. <laughs> Nicola, <laughs> bitchy. Fabriel, <laughs> bitchy. And basically, uh, she kind of becomes friends with Nicola, and Nicola's like, listen, stop suspecting my cousin. Uh because, like, uh, the Duke L'Envers is her cousin. And she's like, stop it. You guys are both trying to find... He suspects you're the traitor. You suspect he's the traitor. Both of y'all are idiots. And Phaedra's <laughs> like, nope. I still suspect him. And so Nicola does this thing where she's like, listen, I'm going to give you something. And I need you to, like... You won't trust him. And I need you to fucking trust me for, like, half a second. And, and Phaedra doesn't fully... And basically she tells her... There is this thing that in the House Longver, if you say by the burning river, it's a house's like secret code words. If you say that, anyone in the House Longver has to help or listen. Like, it's just a thing. And I'm giving this to you in the hopes that one day you will understand that I'm trusting you with this information. Please stop hating each other. You're on the same side. And Phaedra is still super suspicious. Uh, and basically, you find out that Marmion Sharzai was indeed not helping Melisande. He actually accidentally killed his sister, who did help Melisande. He suspected she helped Melisande. And, and Fedra kind of puts together that, like, Persia Sharzai was the person who helped Melisande. And their idea that they come up with is that when they thought Persia was leaving Melisande's cell, it was actually Melisande in Persia's cloak. But they can't figure out who went in with her. And who escorted her out? Because somebody escorted her out and they can't get a story. So they're, she's like, we need to find out uh, who it is. But eventually she she realizes she has these dreams and she's been avoiding it. Uh, but she starts having bad dreams. And in her dreams, it's basically go to La Serenissima. You know where she is. You're trying to, that's where you have to go. You don't want to go, but fucking go. And so she she decodes her dreams and she's like, fuck it, we've got to go. And she tells Asandra and Asandra's like, nah, I think you're out of your mind. Why would she have just told you where she was? Like, that makes no sense. And Fetcher's like, I don't know. I got a gut feeling. I got to follow it. So they decide they're going to La Serenissima. Before uh, they go to the coastal city where they're going to go, they uh, get a lead about where some of the soldiers who had been at uh, the battle slash encampment where Melisande escaped the ones who had been stationed there at Toilemont had gone and decided to work with the Unforgiven in whatever that region is. So Fedra's like, because the, the guys are like, her chevaliers are like, we're going to Marseille, coast. I'm so excited. Gonna do some bets and sleep <laughs> with some people and have a good time. And she's like, nope, we're actually going in the opposite direction to a mountain village very quickly. We have to camp, guys. And they're like, this is not what we signed up for but anyway she drags all of them off the mountains into Siobal that's where it is into Siobal they get there and basically the captain of the Unforgiven is like yeah we had some people here but they ended up getting stationed elsewhere some of them ended up in La Serenissima in the little court and Fedra's like oh the plot she doth indeed thicken the little court by the way is um the court uh, that is one of the Dongelin nobles keeps in La Serenissima. He is like a claimant to the throne, if I'm remembering. I don't remember his exact relationship. He is uh, Isandra, the queen's uncle. It was his brother, the previous king, Ganelon de, Ga de la Coselle, who married him off to strengthen ties with La, la Serenissima. Benedict never loved that. He was never quite here for that. So he created in La Serenissima a little Dongelin uh, oasis called the little court where everything in it is like not la serenissimen <laughs> um <laughs> so these soldiers had been sent there and so she's like perfect we know where we have to go 
step one. And everybody, including her chevaliers and Jocelyn, are like, Fedra, this is a wild-ass fucking goose chase. You are going off of a dream and a hunch. My guy. And she's like, we're doing this. So they go to La Serenissima. When they get there, uh, Severio Stregazzo visits her and decides he's going to try marry her. <laughs> Uh, they can't get into the little court initially, so they meet uh, Severio's parents, Marco Stragazza, and his his mom is the one who's half Don Julian, half Lacerinissimen. Basically, the political situation is just that the old doge, which is the guy in charge, he's beginning to, he's getting really old, and he has two sons, one of which is gay, and like, they're trying, or bi, I think, whichever. Gay. No, he's gay. He's full, full gay. on gay? Full on gay, which is what makes his marriage so sweet and bittersweet we actually don't know he might be bi we actually don't know no bi erasure be careful yeah basically there's a struggle going on between the two sons to see who's going to replace the doge whoever's going to replace the doge needs prince benedict's blessing in this and him and his son-in-law marcos are on the outs because benedict has a new wife uh a, a, a young d'angeline noblewoman whose family had been tragically slain during the Scaldi invasion and she ran to Serenissima for protection and she she went to the temple of Ashirat and begged sanctuary and then he married her and everybody kind of likes her because she's taken the veil of Ashirat and she's young and he's kind of older but now they have a son and he's decided he's going to leave all of his stuff to his new son which really pissed off his daughter because at in Ser La Serenissima, she's not going to get anything. Women can't inherit. So the only things she could inherit were his D'Angeline properties. And now he's giving it all to the son. So there's like, the sides of the family are butting heads. Again, Carrie writes politics with such a deft hand. The, so all the motivations quiet. make so much sense. The politicking between them. It's it's really great. Uh, one thing I do want to mention, it's just not a great time to mention it, but going back to Fedra and Jocelyn is that I mentioned in the first book that I really liked the distance between the narrator and the characters and Fedra and how that made the world feel very real. That, I think, proves to be a bit of a double-edged sword because I never really quite felt the conflict roiling in Fedra for... Jocelyn and how their split in the relationship was really making her feel. It didn't ever feel very intense to me. Part of that is that Fedra is actually just a remarkably practical character who like never really lets stuff get in her way. The only time you really get a feeling for how intense it is is when her and Jocelyn are having a fight and she gets bratty, uh, which is just like a great character trait of Fedra's is that she just gets kind of contrary and bratty. But I didn't feel it intensely like in a in a fanfic way almost and so i think that's i think that's a casualty of the more distance viewpoint and i will agree like will very much likes the distance viewpoint i think it's part of the because reason because i want to be a super serious writer i think it's part of the reason that kept me the first time i read the first book from really getting invested in the characters and i cared about the conflict between jocelyn and fedra much more on this second read and was much more okay with it the first time i was like come on guys <laughs> stop your like bratty arguments like get it together uh, and this time and it's because because I've read the whole series and I've read the second series, I care about these characters to an extent that the book itself doesn't have to necessarily put that work in. But as a first time reader, it is a little bit just like you don't in um, Axiom's End, I talk about that sweet, tooth achy, delicious angst yes, that you get sometimes when reading. That's what I'm talking reading. about. And like, it's just, mm, 
it's warm and cuddly, but also when it's not, it's sad and you, you ache inside and you don't get that. And you should. Um, I felt it again much more the second time because I have already, like the emotional investment is already there. I've, I, I, by reading all of these things, I've done the work. I'm just so opposite of all of, like both of you and all of this. <laughs> Which is good. This is why we need. The Fedra to Ardelanis, go ahead, <laughs> young apprentice. One of you said that like, she's just a really practical character. Mm-hmm. And she makes decisions based on, like, she can't really control what the fuck is going on in Jocelyn's mind. She's talking to him. It doesn't really work. So she just kind of is like, okay, well, he'll either figure shit out or not. Like, I can't do anything. And, you know, I kind of respect that. Because oh, absolutely. The whole, like, you know, what you were just saying of, like, oh, you need to, like, you know, whatever you said. like Pine intensely like a toothache. That, that's the kind of thing. That makes me want to just throw the book in a fire. (laughs) (laughs) So I really appreciate how downplayed this is. Fair enough. Uh, Again, for me, it was never the missing the angst the first time I read it. I just like, I knew they were going to end up together and the petty arguments, like, because like there is a essential core problem in their romance. Like, and it is, he is kind of a, like, number one, he was, he never expected to be, yes. He's a huge brood. He never expected to sleep with anyone. And then once he did, he was like, okay, you're my person. I'm your person. We are good. That's it. And then Phaedra is essentially Phaedra. She she got urges. Bitch gets horny a lot. Like, even when she doesn't want to be in weird <laughs> situations. I literally just read a part in the third book where something horrific is happening and somebody mentions, like, silk ties and a whip and Phaedra gets turned on. And the character's like, even now, Phaedra? And she's like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's like, it, it was, is really funny it is so funny and relatable and <laughs> oh no i mean no i don't know i don't get it, 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 never, it never happens oh, um i've never been turned on in inappropriate moments right now you're <laughs> they are essentially these two creatures he is he is Cossiels. she is kushils and namas and like the two doth not to go together well um so there is an essential fundamental issue with their relationship and valid one it's not like a dumb it, it makes sense that this is a real challenge in their relationship that they have yeah, to deal but that's with. also that's also why like i can appreciate the distancing is because that's not a oh well we're just arguing about something and we're working it out if we talk to each other communication that's like literally like phaedra's phaedra jocelyn's jocelyn jocelyn has to figure his shit out because phaedra is already i mean in my opinion Phaedra's already made, like, as much of a compromise as she could. Like, for the year that they were in Montreux, you know, she wasn't doing anything. Like, they were trying to make it work and whatnot. But, like, it's, like, when you're, like, that kind of person, you just kind of need to work with it. And Jocelyn would either figure it out and be okay with it or not. Like To be fair, he's also not giving her any dick during this period. Like, they don't, like, have sex during while they're together as a... because well, he's mad at her. Yeah, exactly. But that that's part of what gives the distance and makes Phaedra like frustratedly like you know there's hangry and then there's <laughs> hangry which is horny and angry <laughs> and Phaedra is kind of horny angry during a lot of their arguments especially when he gets like firm with her like there's this point where like he he, he like he kind of yells at her and like holds her fiercely and she's like oh 
And he's like, <laughs> and then he gets mad and leaves. And then he gets mad and he's like, God damn it! You're not supposed to get turned on by that. Funny. And then she talks about how the emotionality of of their rift is actually kind of turning her on because that's Kushiel's start. And she's like, sweet, sweet emotional pain, also. Which I think is actually kind of interesting because that is a real thing, and that some people are drawn to the drama and the storm and angst of a relationship, like that that center of storm kind of a thing. And so it's kind of interesting to see that portrayed in such an honest way where like a lot of books don't talk about how there is that attraction when there is the the frisson and the conflict i don't think the distance is that big of an issue i can see why for will it would be like again for me the first time i was just like stop arguing mommy mom papa stop (laughs) mom and dad stop fighting i love you get back together uh and this time i like i knew where things were going and i was like they shall come out of this stronger we're gonna talk about in the end how carrie fumbles the resolution because I, Will was made this point earlier, and I completely agree. She doesn't handle it as well as she could. She uses a little tiny bit of a comp out, but we'll get there. Anyway, continuing on. Phaedra's exploring, and during this sequence, there's no sex. <laughs> like, she doesn't sleep with anyone. Severus is like, uh, can we do something? She's like, I'll think about it. And he's like, can we get married? And she's like, no, you no. weirdo. <laughs> like, he's literally courting her for marriage. And she can't, like, outright reject him because she kind of needs his family's influence and stuff. So she's like, uh, so in Todonj, I was a courtesan. But here you must woo me as if I was a woman. And he was like roger dodger i will do it um and it's great it's hysterical he shows up drunk one night singing on a gondola outside her window and it is and like somebody like someone across the like canal is like about to throw their chamber pot on him and she's like safario get the fuck out of here it was early in the morning and everyone's like what the fuck are you doing at basically three o'clock in the morning we're trying to sleep sleep get the fuck out Severio, you drunk ass italian pain in the butt um i love Severio. he's great she's doing her uh machinations and like her discovering and there are these moments and i'm not going to go into how the pr- process of finding it but there is this building sense of dread as she's putting things together and you as a reader because there's like eventually they get into the little court there's a moment where she like goes to the temple of Ashirat. a priestess says something she meets with the actual doge he says some stuff she like meets with uh richardo stregazza and his wife says and like you're getting these little tiny bits of information and Fedra like is getting it and the picture is like there but she can't see it there's something missing she's looking at this puzzle they there was this astronomer guy who knew something and they realized he knew something and then he literally poisoned himself and killed himself clarification it was not astronomy astrology yes there we go an astrologist but he literally murders himself and they were like holy shit he was scared he absolutely knew melisande like we're we're on the trail we're figuring it out and there's this dread and i was worried because i knew what was coming that it wouldn't be as big of a build-up for me the second time and it was even worse because i'm watching fader to put the pieces together and she's missing it and i'm like my guy you just you're missing it's right there it's staring you you've literally looked at it like girl and it was even worse will as a first-time reader how did the build-up leading to the reveal feel for you i did not feel that much dread there is a, a sense of underlying dread but like it was it was really nice just to get like okay the mystery is coming together she's also a very good mystery writer in a lot of ways because that's what a lot of she really is the first third is is like you're getting the pieces everything kind of makes sense and you're like okay what's going on i part of the dread is that like i didn't 
quite understand, I think. My inability to remember names it was, I think, a bit of an impediment to quite knowing what was going on and picking up on clues. I can sympathize. Because, <laughs> like, when the reveal happened, I, I had to think, and I was like, oh, that's who that was this whole time. Like, I didn't know they existed. <laughs> like, it's it was imp- an impediment a little bit, but there is, like, a really nice atmosphere yeah. to it. There's this moment where, uh, and I'm going to describe the reveal because it's absolutely fantastic. Again, we know Malisande is in La Serenissima. We've been trying to find her, figure out what her machinations and plans are Fedra and Jocelyn have a fight because they end up like angry sleeping together where like there's this moment and he's like don't and then Phaedra like leans in and then he leans in and then like it's rough it's great but not great and it's angry and he leaves in the morning and then she has to go off like she finally gets an invite to meet uh Benedict uh, Prince Benedict and she ends up taking Remy and Fortune uh, with her to this uh, invite. One of the things that they find out previously, which is important, is that all the guards who came from Toilemont have the same exact story for everything. And they say it was um, Percy, Percy to some of you, or was it the Duke Lanvert? They, they say, like, this one guy was the person they saw with uh, Persia Charles. Well, they accuse Lanvert. Yeah, they accuse Lanvert, and for Fedra, it's like, this is it. And then Fortune's like, no, 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 no. Everyone had the same exact story. Like, that is really improbable. No one had a thing different. Something is shifty here. Why are all of these guards here? I don't buy it. And Fedra's like, nah, you're right, bro. But anyway, they go to meet Prince Benedict. And then, like, they get there. And the the wife of Prince Benedict holding her, her baby reveals herself. And it's Melisande. She's been there the whole fucking time. She's Prince Benedict's young Dongeline wife. She had a baby with him. Literally, Phaedra stared at her earlier when she was walking on a terrace. And you're just, like, caught off guard. It's right there. You're like, Melisande, you crafty-ass bitch. And and then Benedict, like, gives the order. And they, they go to kill them. Except for Phaedra. Because there's apparently this thing where... If you kill Kushiel's Chosen and you're Dionjolene, it's like 10,000 or like 5,000 years of pain under Kushiel. But if you're of Kushiel-Line bloodline and you kill Kushiel's Chosen... Or cause the death of. Cause the death of 10,000 years. And so uh, Melisande's not here for that. So she wants to, she decides to uh, keep her alive. But they kill Remy and Fortune. And it is so sad because this is one of those times where Carrie really, like that distance doesn't mm-hmm. impede your emotional response to what's happening. Because- it actually makes it better in certain ways because she's just describing the events and it's gutting. I don't usually have very strong emotional reactions to the things I read, but I was so pissed. I was like, God damn it, Melisande. You were like the sexy, cool, evil one. And now you're just a bitch. <laughs> Remy and Fortune were just so good. Fortune was such a yeah. good boy. And they were so like defensive of Vedra. And it was just, she did such a good job building up these characters and idiot me, because I, I realized that while I can often like look at a book and critically predict what's going to happen generally as a reader, when I'm reading for pleasure, which was the first time I read this, I don't do that. Again, I wasn't like, Oh, enemies to lovers prior to her and Jocelyn getting to uh, Scaldia. Like, I was like, oh, this is her love interest. And, like, with Remy and Fort, like, if you think critically at all, here are these three characters from the last book that are being built up, real friends. You're like, someone's dying. 
one of these or two of these bastards is gonna fucking nope maria was completely blindsided the first time she read this like i'm the reader that authors often want where like if i'm enjoying your book i just i'm i'm there for the ride <laughs> i i will not question yeah it's funny because i i kind of had that too in that i was like when i even in the first book i'm like okay they're gonna die it's the whole dog thing and then i was so fucking pissed when they died <laughs> so angry and they were such good boys and Phaedra's gutted about this and they end up throwing her into this prison called La Dolorosa uh, you're first introduced to this when they're sailing to La Sirenisma it's a black isle of volcanic rock and the wind howls like it's it, there's a wailing sailors are super superstitious about it uh, the big goddess in La Sirenisma um, is a Shirat and a Shirat's son Ish- Ishmun was killed once and that La Dolorosa is a personification of her grief of the death of her uh, son. And then they decided to use it as a prison because what else are you going to do with Howling Rock Place? And so she gets sent there. Uh, it sucks. It's a rough place. I really love the way she wrote this because it's just, you really sense Fedra's slowly kind of going a little bit mad. And there's a guy who's constantly yelling in a room nearby. And like, there's a, someone who's scratching. That, the distance perspective was not a problem there. Like, you really do kind of feel it. And I really liked that bit of writing. It's It's very intense. Eventually, like, Melisande comes to her at La Dolorosa and is like, how are you liking it? Not great, right? Well, your other option is you can come live. I have made a pleasure chamber dungeon slash it's got books, nice things, a good (laughs) bed, you'll get good food. And if you agree to come be my pet and live with me, I will take you out of here. And Phage is like, oh, no, that's hard. And there's this really great moment where Melisande is using her, like, the power she has over Phaedra against Phaedra and she like kisses her and Phaedra feels herself losing herself. So she bashes her head into the rock wall and like she's bleeding and Melisande's like, oh shit, Phaedra. And it's in that moment that Phaedra realizes she actually cares about me. This is the only power I have over this woman because she's got the rest. (laughs) Melisande leaves and she's like, next time I come, I will offer you again. And because uh, once I leave La Serenissima and go back to claim my rightful place as ruler of Tedange, uh, the guards will probably fuck you up because right now they're doing not doing it because I tell them not to. So uh, that's on you, bitch. And so Fedra's sitting there and she gets to a point where she's like, I'm going to go insane here. I'm going to lose myself. Rather be Malison's pet and maybe at some point figure out a way to get out of that situation. And she, she doesn't want to make the choice, but she kind of does. And then it is that night that like shit's going weird. She hears guards uh, calling uh, for stuff. Somebody comes in, checks if she's there and she ends up like feminine wiling herself into knocking the guard out, stealing his keys. And she's like running through the halls dirty in her long gray dress. And it's the escape scene. And it's fantastic because someone is assaulting the the key. And it should be mentioned that to get onto La Dolorosa, it's really dangerous. They have like a plank of wood that you just walk across for like a hundred feet. Like you could just fall in and that's the only way in. And they literally have people stationed to, if somebody's coming across that shouldn't, like that doesn't have permission from the other side to cut the rope. So you just fall in. And so like the fact that somebody somehow got across and nobody fucking noticed is insane. And she's like, she sits there for a moment and she's like, who would be harebrained enough <laughs> to attempt to attack La Dolorosa almost single-handed? And at this point, you think single-handed, and she's like, God damn it, it's fucking Jocelyn, my baby boy. And you as a reader are like, yeah, it's fucking... Because at this point in the story, you just... You are invested in Jocelyn as a fucking badass. Like, he's pretty, <laughs> but he's gonna fuck you up. And, like, he's a 
a dog with a bone. Jocelyn and his like battle prowess is just one of my favorite parts of the, and it, it, ah, it's so good. Anyway, it's great. It's so she escapes, she gets out. There's like battles happening. Um, eventually her and Jocelyn see each other and you like are like, Oh, my baby's reunited. And then the book's like, nah, fuck you. There's a tussle stuff happens. And Phaedra ends up falling into the fucking ocean off a cliff. And, and Jocelyn's just watching her. She fucks up Jocelyn's rescue attempt. That's the thing. And that's how I texted it to Maria is like, he was doing great until she fell into the water. Like he, it, she ruined his rescue. Had she, and I, I bet you 10 bucks, had she just stayed in her cell? Or not gotten into the tussle and stayed in the actual building instead of coming out. And so it's one of those things where like, it's all unintentional. Everyone was doing the best that they could with the information that they had at the time. But it does suck because like she sees Jocelyn see her as she falls over the edge. And there's literally a point where she's in the water, like drowning. She's literally drowning. Um, and she like comes up to the surface at one point and she sees a figure scaling the fucking cliffs, <laughs> like reverse princess bride style. And you're just like, Jocelyn, my boy, you good? Like, Oh, I love it so much. But anyway, she's drowning and she's legitimately kind of dying. And she's like praying to Eloa. She's playing, praying to Kushiel, Nama. And then she's like, you know what? Ishira, I'm sorry. Your grief sucks. But also someone in your temple is betraying you. If you save me right now, I swear I will like get rid of the people fucking up your religion and the worship of you and being bad. I, I will clean out your temple. And Ishira's like, bet and like whisks her way out of the ocean and Fedra's like ah air and then she's like oh man I'm thirsty and she's just like floating on a a thing and she's very thirsty and then a ship appears and she's like please help me and they they take her out of the water it's a pirate ship um which is part two of our yes oh no Fedra's a slave again so part two starts with oh no Fedra's in prison in La Dolorosa and then we also have oh no Fedra's someone's hostage slash slave again which is when she gets on the pirate ship because she she's on the um and i'm gonna be real quick about this part and just talk about like the there's two major things that happen gina and i love pirate kazan atrabiades he is a balkan pirate who's been given the lacerimissimans shit for years will does not love him that's okay he can be wrong here's the thing here's the thing i liked him more when he was kind of dangerous and like you weren't quite sure what was going on with them but he kind of comes a little too cuddly a little too fast for me and also i just didn't find him an interesting character for how long he's around i in general i feel like this third of the story lasts too long and i didn't really care what happened to him like i just don't i just don't really care he's not a badly written character he's a very well written character i don't dislike him i just don't like him or love him i'm just kind of like can we get back to the plot a little bit i don't care about this weird quetzalcoatl thing that's gonna eat him (laughs) like i just don't really care (laughs) So to explain, uh, so first off, yes, this part does last a little long. I love Kazan. I like the adventure, but I too, when I first read this was like, La Serenissima, shit's happening. What what is my my baby boy Jocelyn thinks Fedra's dead. And you just go on this whole ass adventure. And there's always a point, like I said, in the first, when we were doing plot 
revelations of how the books work. There's always a portion where like you're traveling and you're away from the homeland uh, and you have to get back to the main plot. Uh, so for the first book, it's the Scaldia portion. She's literally away. She knows that she needs to get back to home and save, but she has to get there. Um, and in this, it's with Kazan trying to get back to La Serenissima. I will argue, though, that it's more effective in the first book, because in the first book, the last third doesn't happen if the second third doesn't happen, and they aren't. Um, there's a direct causation between the two. Whereas this one, you could go yada, yada, yada. They come back, and she now has the tools to fix the problem she had originally. And so there, it is more of like a circuitous route of like, this could kind of be, it's a little off topic to go here. Whereas in the first one, one builds on the other so it's fine i love kazan and i like the adventure we go on with him it is <laughs> it is long so basically what you find out is kazan trebiades has a blood curse there is this weird serpent creature that it, he accidentally killed his brother uh one time and then his mom cursed him that if he ever returned to epidoro the like his city his home that uh the what's its face I'm blanking on the name, but anyway, the what's his face would eat his soul. And so he can't go back. And so he has made a little home place in Dobrak. And basically he gets Phaedra and he's like, ah, I shall ransom you. Good times. Um, and he's like, but at my leisure. And she's like, no, I need to go either take me to Teradon or take me back to like, I need to go. And he's like, nah, fuck you. I do this when I want. And so they go to his home of Dobrek and they're there like number one Phaedra's kind of fucked up so she has to heal but they go to Dobrek and that's that portion is the part that just took way too long for me like it's it, it's not the interesting because there's this thing that's going to happen called the Terminus and then there's like getting back to Epidoro and getting to La Serenissima and both of those are really like interesting and fun uh this part not so much one thing I will say is that there's a, there is an interesting world building bit and something I didn't mention either about this first third or in the second uh, or in the first book is that she kind of like has to take an assignation essentially with him. It, the consent issues are kind of um, blurry and not great, but what it is is she's like getting ready for it. And Fedra always is very centered by having these assignations and you get the sense that like she is really good at her job and she enjoys being good at her job. And it is not, ex I mean, there's a spiritual aspect to it, but it's almost just a meditative aspect to it. And I think that's a really interesting and really interesting balance to hit with a sex worker because it's usually either like she hates her job and she needs to get out or some kind of vague like, oh, she likes her job because we're trying to be sex worker positive. But here you really get a sense that like this is her character. This is her calling. Yeah, this is her calling. Yeah. Because she, she always says like, I've never misjudged a patron's wants. Like she immediately will know who a patron is. Like she knows who's going to be a patron. Um, and so there is this like mastery of her craft. Um, and like she knows like, when to use like the full Monty, like, like, or like, is this person going to be able to handle the full Monty or are we going to go half Monty and warm them up? Like she, she's got that. And so it's the sex scene with Kazana's Trebiades feels less like a sex scene than someone who's really good at their job telling you how they were really good at their job. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a lot of Phaedra's sex scenes. And so you're right. It is like really masterful because it takes that like um, fetishized, edge because a lot of times and we spoke about this last time when bdsm is portrayed it's like to fetishize it and like make it sexy Ooh. yeah even by people who are into bdsm and think it's healthy it's like their 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 libido takes over for the writing it's a scene yeah it's within a scene is i think how i explained it to gina when my annoying co-host had left um and then <laughs> <laughs> 
And here it's really treated, it, again, the way she thinks about it, like she draws calm from it. It reminds me of like when I'm doing one of my creative projects, honestly, like that is kind of the vibe. She's in the zone. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting, but basically he, he he gives her a choice that's not really much of a choice, which is I'll do this thing you want and send the letter and like send a fast ship to go, uh, but I kind of want you to sleep with me. And she's like, not super happy about the choice, but she makes it because she needs to. And she's like, I slept with the Count de Morbon when I needed to get through Kushiel that once. Like, Nama's done it. I've done it. Bitch gonna do what a bitch gonna do. Um, and he waits for her to get healed and they kind of become friendly. But anyway, they do the sleepy thing. Eventually, the sleepy thing. <laughs> the, sleepy thing. Uh, <laughs> the ship comes back and they're like, yes, uh, the, the Lady of Marsilicos will pay your... Uh, I'm speaking like this for a reason. It'll become clear in a second, guys. Don't worry. We will pay the the bond or the ransom price you have offered. Here is twenty or however fifteen thousand. Here's half of it. But you have to bring her here by La Serenissima, which is where we're going to pick her up. Okay, thanks. We've kept three of your people as surety. And he's like, okay, let's go. We'll take you. Phaedra's like, yay, home. And then as she gets closer and the, the switch is about to happen, she's like, something feels really off. And like her and Kazan get on the other boat and it's a lot, it's a Serenissimen guy's there. And he's like, okay, now we kill her. And she's like, God damn it. You betrayed me, Kazan. And basically uh, the boat he sent to take the message to Marsilicos got intercepted by a Serenissimen blockade. And they were like, we, and the problem is, Phaedra never told Kazan, and a, a huge portion on uh, of this book is learning like what you should and shouldn't tell people, and how being too withholding can be your downfall. Because she never tells Kazan that La Serenissima was her enemy, and that Prince Benedict, because specifically they're like Prince Benedict shall pay his her ransom, and he's like, well, he's Donjolene, she's Donjolene, that should be just as good. Why would this be scary? Um, but had they. Had she told him, like, nah, Prince Benedict's a fucking traitor, and uh, he's the reason I was in La Dolorosa, uh, this wouldn't have happened, because he didn't know. And so they try to kill Phaedra, and to his credit, he immediately is like, nah, I'm gonna take the gold and Phaedra, and we're gonna fuck off. They fight, he loses a couple of men. Him and his country really hate the Serenissimans, because they put some bad, like, trade laws on them and stuff like that, so, like, he's always down to kill some Serenissimans, <laughs> which is very funny. They grab Phaedra, they go off, and um, they end up trying to go to Epidoro. Three of his ships get there, but his ship, as he gets closer, the snaky creature thing, it starts attacking him, and Phaedra's like, turn back, we can't do this, he's gonna die. So they turn back and they end up getting washed up onto Creedy. And while they're there, there's this whole, uh, like, Creedy has this thing called the Terminus, where if you do it, you get absolved of all of your blood guilt and, like, your blood curses. And he has a blood curse. And he's like, yeah, I want to do this. And Fedra's like, no, we ain't got time for no blood curse removals. I got to do stuff. And everybody there is like... Petra, you're here because you were sent here. Like, if you were if you were going to get political aid, you would have been sent somewhere else. You need to be here. So uh, Kazan goes through the terminus. While he's doing that, Fedra decides that, like, she hears him screaming because she, she decides she wants to witness it. The caveat for the terminus is you're either cured of your blood curse or guilt, or you go insane. Or you, yeah, and potentially, or die. Um, so, like, not a lot of great options here. Um, so she's she watches, like, the they do the thing because Aunt's not allowed to eat. They send him into this cave. Screaming starts. Really intense screaming. And Fedra's like, damn it, this is my fault. He's going to die. I got to go help him. And so she decides to go in. And so she basically goes through this whole, like, process. But, she, like, 
and it sucks. It's super bad. She's faced with any blood that's on her hands, any innocent person that might've died because of a decision she made, even if it was one that she made in trying to help other people. Apparently this whole time, and I didn't feel this very deeply for the character, but she's been carrying around this weight of guilt of the people, you know, uh, Remy and T. Philippe or whoever those two were dying. And even before that, I didn't feel like this portion super worked as character growth because I just didn't feel like it was set up correctly but as a as a sequence on its own it is really well written see for me i see it less as like the conclusion of the previous thing as something that gets sets up here and is going to get resolved in the third book oh interesting yes because that's okay that makes a lot more sense because yeah. it, it's not she fedra is pretty proud of the things she's done previously besides remy and fortune's death she doesn't but it is in this moment that she realizes that every decision she makes whether intended or not has cost lives so she is suddenly given guilt so and it's it's the reverse yeah and later in the book she's like oh i gotta be careful because when i reach the terminus again these people will be there for me and it's actually not the terminus the terminus is the move that kills people okay i thought that wasn't the name no, of it it's not the, the when they land there the place there has kind of got a similar name thetalos the thetalos uh it was a t and a yes d. so during the thetalos Kazan is wiped clean of his blood guilt. So all the things that have been haunting him, he comes to terms with, and then the priestess blesses him and it's wiped away. What this does is humble Phaedra into understanding that the decisions she makes cost lives. Whether she intended them or not, they do cost lives. And it's the first time that she's really come to terms with that. And it's something that she now, from this point on, carries with her. Okay, that's why it wasn't set up correctly for me. <laughs> yeah, because you were looking at it. You, you were looking at it as a resolution. It is the setup. And so she, she now carries this guilt because every time someone might die in something, she's like, oh God, that's going to be on my conscience now. Because she now is thinking about it. And it's the opposite of Melisande, who does not think about how the choices she makes and the things she sets up affect innocent people. Um, and again, all of this is going to come to fruition in the third book. Don't you wait, we got you. So they do the Thetalos. Uh, Kazan is like, happy now uh he's chill he's Fedra's number one fan he's like let's do this he's now cuddly bear because he's like a mediterranean it, pirate it erases his guilt like it, it erases his feeling of guilt so he's like born again he realizes now that asking Fedra to sleep with him was really fucked up she didn't really have a choice he apologizes for that um but he also realizes he owes Fedra like the, the decisions she's made led him to this point and he owes her a debt so he's like I'm gonna help you I don't know how I'm gonna help you get back to uh La Serenissima and deal with your shit um because I owe you they ask the they have a really useless thing where they go to the Creedy government and it's like three chapters of like are they gonna help us no they're not we have to go like that part could just be cut entirely I don't know why it's there and all you needed was the the head priestess to be like we shall send a ship because basically what they get out of Creedy is that um they're gonna send a ship with a message to be taken to the lady of Marsilicos uh because the path that they would take Rope bondage lady what no, oh, not that, that, no, not? it's not Rope Bondage uh, Lady. It's the, the lady who is the head of the sea city of Marsilicos. Okay, I thought it was a Rope Bondage Lady. Not Rope Bondage Lady. It's too bad. I like her. I just was trying to include her in more of the book. She has to write the letter in a way that she'll impart everything that she needs to know. But they also realize what happens if something happens to the letter. So she makes they make the messenger memorize the message phonetically in Dongeline in the hopes that this is going to get... Uh, where it needs to go. And that's the only important thing you need out of her visit to the government of Credia. And again, you could have just had the priestess be like, all right, 
we shall send the message. You didn't, it was an unnecessary aside. It doesn't add, like, it's it's interesting, but it's, eh, you don't need it. Basically what happens is they go to- Epiduro. And his mom is really happy to see him. And then the leader of Epiduro is like, uh, should we help you, should we not? And then they end up helping it's with kind of the understanding, like, okay, the Dongelines are now going to be- Oh, we have not even mentioned, we forgot to mention, Isandra the Corsel is doing a like tour into La Serenissima to just say hi to people and whatnot. And the idea is Melisande is going to assassinate her when she comes there and then the king of the small court again i'm forgetting his name Benedict. is going to take over because he's like i do not like that she married an albin and now there's going to be a half breed on the throne this is not cool which is something that i i would have liked to see more of in this book later on in terms of there being a divide in donjolin society between people who are like more okay with it and people who aren't in Take a Drink People, A Song of Ice and Fire's backstory, there's this whole thing about the Blackfire Rebellions where the king married a, a kind of exotic woman, um, Dornish, and like it split their society, which also had to do with like second sons versus first sons and like a more conservative a branch of them versus a more liberal. It was it's very interesting. I wish that had been played on more, yeah. but it, it isn't. There's the understanding that like some of the Dondolins don't like that she married an Albin, but he also like helped save the realm. So they're dealing with it. It is something that comes up because you deal with her children in the next trilogy and they deal with like some, like, oh, you don't look right-ism. In Epidora, yeah, the Bond decides to help them because he is sending a tribute ship for the new doge being crowned. He's like, I have no idea how to help you without risking my nation. And then his wife, who is like a tiny ass bit character, but she's just so great because she comes up and she's like, Hide her in the tribute ship. Hide her in the tribute. And they're like, what? And she's like, when my family escaped, we had false bottoms in our trunks. I actually really loved her as a character because... <laughs> take a drink again, guys. In A Song of Ice and Fire. This video's going to get you fucked up if you're taking actual <laughs> alcoholic shots. Let's go. There's this whole thing. It's a series very interested in femininity in a lot of ways in terms of how... What kind of power do they have in a patriarchal society and soft power versus hard power? And so in this book, so far, the Angelus society is very egalitarian. Women can own stuff. They are treated pretty much the same. It's very egalitarian. And so you see women in places of power. And then in this area, you see that like women, there is a very strict patriarchy but like the leader he really values his wife's opinion he she stands next to him and she does have a smart thing to say so it's interesting to see like no it's not just if it's egalitarian women can have power but there's like a more soft power that they can wield in these other places and i just think it's interesting to explore that a little bit yeah it makes the world feel more real yet again the band's wife is fantastic i love her they decide they're gonna have fedra in a trunk of the tribute at the bottom it's got a false bottom and i love this scene i i Number one, I think it's a crazy kooky idea, um, but they like get close enough and they hide Kazan's men who are all wanted Serene like pirates in Serenissima <laughs> uh, and they just put them in guards clothes and are like, here's hoping nobody recognizes. And Phaedra has to like get into this false bottom and it's super claustrophobic. And ever since she's, um, she drowned, she has a huge issue. Like it's, it's, and I like that, that she connected the ability to not breathe as a fear, but they end up getting into Serenissima no problem. Uh, and thus starts part three, uh, heading towards our uh, two conclusions. Because once again, there's two fucking conclusions. Yeah, I don't love there's that. There's always two. Like, I'm I'm just warning you. Basically, they find 
uh, they find Jocelyn, Jocelyn. the Hibiru. Again, I want to keep saying Hibiru, the Yeshuaite corner. He is super happy to see her. He grabs her. They kiss. It's like, it's so cute because he doesn't do that a lot. He's not effusive in a lot of ways. And so for him to play into those romantic kind of tropes is really cute. Yeah. And he's like, oh, I love you, Fedra. I thought you were dead. You can have as many patrons as you want. And this is the resolution to their earlier split. And me and Maria need to talk about how we don't love it. So the thing is, and because after this, he is pretty okay with her taking patrons and sleeping with other people and being into like the... Whippy, whippy stuff. It, it tells you all you need to know. The way that this conflict is resolved is he realizes the value she has in his life and he's not willing to give that up just based off of wanting to have her, uh, him, her as his own and not understanding. I don't love this resolution because it feels a little too simplistic and it doesn't really solve, I think, in a lot of ways... The problems between them if this was realistic i could see that the problems would start to just generate again after the the kind of feeling of like now that i'm more secure and her not dying i'm bothered by this again i would have really liked to see more of a growth on jacelyn's part to understand more her needs even if he doesn't share them and to respect that she also needs him even without that and the part for me that was missing is what you were just saying that she needs him but that like she loves him and that her interactions with these other people do not change how she feels about him they're two Mm -hmm. separate spheres and that is just you never you never get it and it it happens in the because by the time you get to the third book they've been together for 10 years there's a 10 year time period between the two books where they've dealt with this they've come to agree an agreement she only takes three patrons a year and so like they both have compromised like she's not out here willy-nilly taking uh patrons uh and he is like come to terms and because there's even a point where in the third book he is okay. Like, he is friendly with one of her patrons. Like, he actually likes her as a person. Which one? Uh, Nicola. She's great. He, he likes her. But it happens off screen. That development happens off screen. And I think it would have been better to see it. I feel like in general, it's a critique of mine I have of the book. And again, I adore the way Jacqueline Carey writes. I think she's really smart. But I feel like sometimes she poses these questions and then answers them but doesn't quite do the work to in between there and uh, there's a certain lack of complexity and this is another thing which is that i in the first book i said that the last third felt like it had too much bread and not too much plot bread and not enough character development and theme jelly to spread over it mm-hmm. i kind of felt like that about this book in general i don't love her decision to make a really large book And there is an extent to which I think that is a decision. In our Red Shirts review, which I'm sure will probably come out before this, I talk about like how the the writer does what he wants to really well, but I just wasn't, uh, I just wanted a different premise essentially, or him to handle the premise in a different way. And that's not his intention. And it's hard to, you, you can't really criticize a writer for writing what they want to write. She wants to write these really large books, but to me, they feel a little empty. And it feels like sometimes we could have spent less time on the plot and like Kazan and learning new languages and instead had more interactions of Jocelyn kind of coming, being challenged and learning and through that. And in general, that's a, a, I, I agree. a little bit of a problem. I, I would have liked more Jocelyn. I would have liked more development with Jocelyn because it's literally them fighting. He's gone for a huge chunk of the book and then he comes back and they've resolved. Um, and it's very cute. Like the shipper heart ships and does pitta-patta. Uh, there's a really cute scene where like he is on a like little island 
uh, with his, uh, he's teaching some Yeshuaite <laughs> students how to fight uh, in the Kosseline manner. Um, and they like, they're talking about like, who's going to do watch. And he's like, I'll take first watch. And his students are like, well, you know, since you're Dom Juliet and we know you guys like fuck, we, we, we did a thing. And they go, <laughs> they go to the tent and they put roses and there's candles and they're like, Fedra's like. And it's like, great because he just, he's like looking at it and he just picks up Fedra and is like, we'll be back. And, and, and it's like, it's like, like a non-him thing to do. Because they're in the background, like red face, but like, oh, oh, did you like? And it's just, it's such a good scene. There's a moment in this that me and Will mentioned before we started recording where like the roses that they've strewn on the bed, there's thorns on them. So while he's making love to Fedra on the bed, she's also getting pricked in the back by the rose thorns. Okay, no, no, no. Here's the thing. Basically, all of their relationships could have problems could have been fixed if she had like a scratchy mattress. Essentially, apparently, that's all that needed to happen is he just needed to dick her down on a scratchy mattress. The point is, like, this is as much of a middle ground as they're going to find. Again, had had it been something where like he brought the roses and he specifically laid them out on the mattress for her, that's that's a symbol. That's 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 sim- symbolic of growth and understanding. Mm. But it's fine. They get there. I love them. They're one of my favorite, like, fictional couples. I adore them to, like, the moon and back. So they hatch a plan where they're like, okay, the doge. So we're in the third part now. Yes, we're in the, once they hit Serenissima. So basically, uh, they find out, like, they're trying to, like, oh, okay, the the ceremony to induct the new doge is going to happen. And that's probably where they're going to kill Isandra. And so we got to, like, figure this out. And then one of the the Yeshuaite students is like, my grandmother was a priestess of that temple. And she told me about this weird tunnel <laughs> that they had to do this thing. Um, and they're like, okay, that's how we'll get in. And Phaedra concocts a plan. And you don't know what it is initially. And they just like, it's one of those things where they're like, and she told everyone their plan. And they were like, are you mad? And she's like, it's the best thing we got. And they're like, okay. Cause, and she calls Jocelyn out where he's like, Phaedra, this plan's insane. And she was like, yeah, who told me to sing a song to the master of the straits? <laughs> And he was like, I guess that was mine. Quite dumb. Quite dumb. Point taken. So basically what they do is there's, uh, in the warehouse district, there is a particular warehouse that has a tunnel connecting to the temple of Ashirat uh, that goes up to a, a balcony where the priestess appears, but she never walks down the stairs. So it's for dramatic effect. And she like, says things dramatically and they make it sound like thunder. Um, so they're gonna get into the warehouse. Uh, they end up having to kill like... <laughs> A couple of the temple eunuchs, poor temple eunuchs, they they were just there doing their best. Fedra's plan is, and I quote, she's going to lie on the floor of this balcony and she's going to pretend to be a Shirat and cause chaos during the ceremony. Okay, the, 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 the temple has like a, essentially acoustics to make the sound of a Shirat's voice. So it's not like she's just like, hey guys, I'm a Shirat. <laughs> <laughs> like there is like it makes a little bit more sense than that <laughs> it does but anyway so she goes up there and like she's like settled down jocelyn and t philippe are like waiting behind her for like when shit gets real and she's watching the the investiture take place and she's like what moment am i gonna like fuck this up like what's and she's waiting and she's waiting and there's this point where like the old doge has to take his ring off and give it because what's supposed to happen is as long as you're the doge you are married to a shirat for life when you die they pick a new one and so how is Shirat's 
sanctuary slash temple was fucked with was somebody was like, no, uh, it turns out Ashirat says she doesn't want you as her husband anymore and she wants a new one. And that's not what Ashirat wanted. Um, so Fedra is sitting there waiting for this moment and like they're doing all the stuff and the Mar- Marco Stragonza says stuff and the old doge is going to take his ring off and she's like, now. And she's like, my love, why do you forsake me? And then like dramatic effect and immediately everybody's like fuck i don't know who like what the fuck was that and like some people are smart. just like give me that back and, yeah. immediately and he's like it. he's like nah bitch i am beloved by a shirat fuck you ride or die <laughs> and, and then like what the reason she did this was not because she legitimately thought everybody was going to believe it but for a moment it would show the division and like there was people who were siding with marco stragazza but who weren't necessarily completely loyal who in this moment would change sides. And so it causes enough chaos that she eventually stands up and she's like, hi, I'm Fedrino Delaney de Montrev. And uh, Benedict de la Cosselle has started a coup. Marco Stregadze is with him. Uh, fuck these guys. They're not doing nice stuff and they're going to kill my queen. Battle ensues. You know, like people are going up the stairs. And then there's also these riots happening and those like, and immediately Melisande is like, she gives a hand signal and they open the doors to let the rioters in. So it's just, pandemonium what had happened before this is they had figured out that one of the castling guards who again are supposed to be uncorruptible actually is gonna murder isandra he's like there's some kind of weird complicated family thing that again i can't remember names and so he's like gonna draw his sword he's he's gonna throw he's gonna do the terminus he's gonna cut his throat and throw a dagger and uh Jocelyn is like, uh-uh, I'm more Castellan even than you. He throws a dagger to stop his dagger, and then they duel, and it's like nothing anyone has ever seen because you've never seen two Castellans fight, fight before. before. Silver's flashing back and forth, and it's great. And then, like, Fedra sees, like, Melisande kind of like, oh, I'm running away a little. And just really chill, cool as a cucumber. She's just like... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, and Fedra's like, fuck you, nobody's looking at you. Fedra goes to stop her and she brings T. Philippe, but he gets lost in the crowd. So it's her and Melisande like having the standoff. And she's like, Fedra, funny seeing you here. And Fedra's got one of Jocelyn's daggers and she's holding it in front of her. And Melisande's like, you can't use that. Like, just like your plan has literally exploded in your face, bitch. Why are you so calm? You cocky ass bitch. I was like, Fedra, just cut her. Just stab her. Like, please. She wouldn't expect it. It would give me such pleasure. You get your, if you want Melisande to like crumble and learn that like her air. That's one of my, my, my criticisms is like. Not in this book. I didn't like, especially after she killed T. Philippe and the other ones. T. Philippe is alive. Fortune and Remy. Like, I was like, no, I, I really wanted to see her more like humbled. And there's a moment later I'll talk about that. It happens more intensely than you could have ever hoped in the third book. Like it is, whew, like sucks to be her. Um, So she's like, Fedra, you can't hurt me. And she starts taking, she grabs Fedra's hands and starts turning the dagger back at Fedra, like under her throat. Uh, and there's this great moment where T. Philippe ends up, because like Fedra's like, no, I can't kill you, but can you kill me? And like Melisande's like, God damn it, I can't kill you either. <laughs> um, <laughs> my favorite boy. T. Philippe comes and Melisande just drops her hands and Fedra's just standing there holding a dagger to her own throat. And she's like, I'm going to drop that before anybody asks any questions about what just happened. So they end up capturing Melisande. Benedict, uh, who had previously been a warrior, fights. He ends up dying there. Sandra's like, 
I'd like to take her home and I'd like to murder her <laughs> to Melisande. And, and everyone's like, yes. And then she's like, actually, you can't touch me. I have sanctuary by the Temple of Ashira. And we're in the Temple of Ashira. And the priestesses are like, God damn it, she's right. Like, I'm sorry, <laughs> but you can't take her. Like, she's under Ashira's protection. And so Mel- Isandra's like, if you ever step a foot outside this fucking temple i will nuke you bitch <laughs> and everyone's so angry and i remember will texting me like she she gets away with like she gets no- nothing <sighs> happens to her she just what and yeah <laughs> she gets to be there and the thing is too they're like she had sent uh Imriel, her son who's now the heir off and like hidden uh and he'll become a big thing in the next book and then in the trilogy after that and like Isan's like okay just show me where he is. And Melisande's like, look, up until this point, this has been a game. But if you go after my son, this is serious business. And I really wanted somebody to be like, bitch, like everybody's sons who died in this war weren't also a big deal. Like I wanted somebody to confront her more with her narcissism. It's okay that she has that view, but I wanted somebody to push it. It's going to come so be like exactly what you're asking for. Now, again, I understand wanting it in this book because I too was like, and because she sends her son away. And what sucks is Isandra realizes that a lot of the problems in the realm started from a blood feud. And and Melisande was able to do the things she was because of mistrust amongst people. And that blood feuds breed resentment that will cause issues for further uh, generations. So what she wants to do is she wants to take Imriel and raise Imriel as her son. To show that like, yes, he is an heir to this throne. I'm going to love him. I'm not going to hold him accountable for the actions of his mother. And it's just really like noble goal and you're like props to you Isandra that's exactly the way you handle this situation yas queen and Melisande's like no I shall not let you raise my son to hate me and poison him against me like bitch you literally have caused so many people to die I think uh anyone on their own would be able to come to those conclusions but anyway so they're like okay now we have to go back to to Dond and then they're like oh no she sent out horses because the, the other thing we forgot to mention is there's someone in uh Terdon who is part of Melisande's coup and it's this guy named Percy de Somerville who smells like apples he smells like apples he also uh wasn't a fan of Isandra marrying a non-pureblood Dongeline person um and that's how and it like Melisande was also able to blackmail him with something that I forgot what it was but anyway and he uh once they're told that Isandra's dead because whether Isandra died or not if when the bells told in the temple of Ashirat four horsemen on very fast horses on a relay would just go to Tyrdonge and be like, the queen's dead. And then Percy de Somerville was going to take the city because he's literally the, the head of the army. And so the horses go and they try to stop him and they can't. So they're like, oh, God damn it. We're going to go. Everyone's going to think I'm like, Isandra's like, everyone's going to think I'm dead. It's basically civil war. Like, what are we going to do? And so they end up having, and this is like, so Climax 1 was dealing with the Temple of Ashira and Melisande. Welcome to the, the setup for Climax 2, which is getting back to Terdange. I really just wanted one Climax. And I also just don't love this one. I love the image of Isandra walking, just like. Saints like through the troops and they all part for her and the 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 um, the coup is undone when it's revealed that she is alive and she's not an imposter, which all happens, but it's like a hundred pages of like, we already had the climax. We know this is going to work out. It's clever how they do it's it. It's literally but. two hours. And I think if you have it not at 1.6 speed or 1.7, whatever I'm on, it's like closer to three and a half. So then they take the city, climax two, everything is good. There's a moment where somebody tells her like she gets a prop. Oh, it was in La Serenissima where they're like once you do the thing you're gonna have 10 years of peace 
and then shit's gonna get fucked up for you. Uh, good luck! And she was like, Roger, then there's a party. Isandra makes her, like, uh, makes Jocelyn King's champion, Queen's champion. She gets Gives to her be- a thing where she can give her, like, a... The companion star. She owes her... She has to talk to Isandra like an equal. Which she hates. Which she hates. She's She was such a good little night court baby. She's very differential to everyone. And she also gets to ask uh, Isandra a boon at some point. Any, anything within Isandra's um, power to give, she has to do a Fedra asks, which is great and is not used at this point. Uh, but what she does do is announce that Jocelyn is her consort. And because she, she says, she's talking to Jocelyn and he's like, well, I guess before you do that, you should probably announce me as your consort because he didn't ever want to do that before. And she's like, really? And then she's like, everyone, he's like literally right then and there, not separate occasions. Uh-huh. She's like, this is my consort, Jocelyn. And it's just, and it sounds just, just like, yeah, it's about time. And then that's the end of the book. That's the end of the book. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. We're done. Overall, I did really like this book. Again, I think certain things about Carrie's style are more apparent and weaken things a little mm-hmm. bit, um, like we talked about. But as a whole, I really liked it. I'm really looking forward to the third book, especially because it's going to get super dark. It should be fun. I mean, Will, you know how much I love dark. And yes, I mean, my th- the third book is my favorite book. I will admit that. But I don't think you're, you don't, I don't think you understand. It is so, it's rough to get through. And here's the thing. There's a third that's rough to get through. The first third is fun. The last mm. third is fun. But there's this middle third. I still wouldn't say they're fun. The last third is fun, definitely. The but the first third is not necessarily like fun, fun, but it's yeah. it's it, it's a good time, you know. It's not rough. And then there's just this rough ass, terrible middle third. That's and the like, middle third is more like you know half the book. I think that this one is the longest one of all. It is. So prepare yourself. <laughs> I'm sorry in advance. What'd you guys think of this book though as a as a whole? Any like closing thoughts? For me, I enjoy this one because I enjoy the whole book and there's not a particular part that I significantly dislike more than the others. Sorry, first book. Um, I enjoy this book more than others. I've heard people talk about the first third as if it's really slow and it's too long. But again, I think that build up to the reveal, especially on a second read, is absolutely fantastic and masterfully done. And despite the like lack of a proper resolution to her and Jocelyn's like issue, I'm here for them being like happy babies who are only challenged from the outside and not themselves. Uh, so like, I'm happy to get to that resolution. I enjoyed this book better than the first book both times that I read it. Again, I would say the Scaldia portion in book one is still like unbeatable. Unbeatable. But this one has this has more parts that I'd say are closer to like that level of enjoyment for me than the first one, which had one. And this I feel like has two really, really strong sections. And as a whole, I think it's just much tighter to put together. Again, I don't love her decision to go with these super long plots, but they're her decisions, and, and it's very polished and good at what it does. I disagree yeah. with you, Maria, because, like like I said, this book is good. I like it. But I also, like, really don't really like it because it's just, it's so, like, you guys are, like, professional English literature, whatever. I'm not. Um, and <laughs> this book is just very boring isn't the right word. <laughs> But it's just, like, everything is just, like, 
okay, we're doing this, and then we're doing this, then we're doing this, and then there's Pirate Kazan, and then we're doing this, and then there's doing this. The first part of the first book was nothing but, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then Yeah, but it was interesting things that were happening. This is just like she's being like, you know, she's like going after this thing, and then like, oh, there's like a section about like how the last Serenissimen courtesans are like treated horribly, like actual prostitutes, and it's just terrible. And then there's like, you know, there's specific things that I remember, which is that. In Kazan. And everything else is just like, yeah, things happened. It was a really long book. Things happened. Like, the first book, I remember pretty much all of it. It was wonderful. The second book is just like, there. And then the third book is like, I remember pretty much everything. It was wonderful. So <laughs> I think it, it goes down to what you really want, want out of the book. Yeah. And like, for me and Maria, our ship of hearts go pitter-patter. Pitter. <laughs> and we're really here also for like the world building, I think. I mean, I am especially. Oh, I love every time we interact with a new culture. One of the things I love the most, and it's such a great cultural detail, is when they're in La Serenissima, there's like a... The flower a, ceremony! A, a, oh, yeah, that was yeah, fun! There's, a, there's like a fake battle between the men and the women of the city, where the women are on top of a tower and they throw hollow eggs with confetti at the men as they try to scale the ladder and then like get one of the women and profess their love. And it's just like, it's a really nice cultural detail. That feels very fleshed out. And like, mm-hmm. it, and like Will said, where it feels like there's this whole iceberg of a culture, but you're getting this peak at this little sliver, but there's all this other stuff. And despite none of the other stuff getting explained, it gives you that. And and I think it's one of those things where like, Will's right, where because it's an alternate history, it kind of lends itself to that. But I think there's something to be said when writers do develop really, 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 really rich histories mm-hmm. or culture, but they don't give you all of it because it wouldn't have a place. Because they could have had a whole thing, like a historical diatribe telling you about... She almost does no info dumping no. Um, in terms of like the history of anything. It's literally just that different strokes, what you're mm-hmm. here for. Because this for me hits a lot of my sweet spots. Again, I would tighten up that second third wide a bit i'm excited i've already started the third book i'm really excited to see uh will's reaction to it gina and i have discussed a lot of our thoughts about it before and so it's gonna be really interesting like i'm i i'm interested because like with the priest sale i didn't realize how much that would hit you (laughs) yeah and how much it was gonna like sit with you and i don't know if this part will or not. I have a weird thing where like I get really affected by depressing and dark things, but I also am really drawn to them. The yes. way I, I think of it is almost like the way I've heard people describe triggers almost, like when they don't have a trigger warning, they can't they start like something and instead of just being like, Oh, I don't want to read this, they once they start it, they're unable to pull themselves out of reading it or viewing it or whatever the media is. And I almost feel that way about depressing and dark and horrible things is like once i start i gotta i gotta finish it i gotta watch the whole thing through and so i am kind of curious because i know a little bit of what happens in the next book just here and there so yeah it's going to be interesting and it's going to be interesting i think to see um how the distance stuff affects that if you have read this book how did you feel about it compared to the first book what are you interested in us uh interacting in our views for the third book we have a patreon go join that if you're still here at this point in the video please do a book club where you pick a book and we live stream it and you talk with us yeah on discord all right till next time bye